When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Before we begin, I wanted to introduce you to a podcast from our partners at Sony we think you'll really enjoy. It's called Cheat. We love to hate them, people who cheat the system, large-scale cheats, social media cheats. But in this climate of fast news, short attention spans, and 280 characters, do we ever get the full picture on those who cheat the system? Cheat is a new podcast digging underneath the surface to tell the inside story behind some of the biggest scandals in contemporary history. From the coughing major who cheated his way to winning £1 million, to the boxer who beat his opponent by coating his knuckles in cement. These stories of cheats will introduce you to the controversial and contentious figures from the world of pop culture, business, sports, politics and love, and fully investigate their rise and fall. We're going to play you a short clip from their series later in the show, but if you're keen to learn more, follow Cheat or search for Cheat in your favourite podcast platform. But now moving on to today's episode, we're joined by acclaimed singer-songwriter David Gray, best known for his album White Ladder, with chart-topping tracks including This Year's Love and Babylon. David spoke to Ross Irwin, and if you do enjoy this episode, you can stream the new record Skellig via the link in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Rosamond Irwin and I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, David Gray, the acclaimed singer-songwriter who's perhaps best known for his best-selling 1998 album, White Ladder. But it's his new album today that we're going to talk about and it's an extremely timely album. Despite being recorded before the pandemic, it explores subjects including isolation and its name, Skellig, comes from the rocky islands of the west coast of Ireland near Kerry, which were inhabited by monks as early as 600 AD. Welcome today. Hello. Obviously, the world has been completely turned upside down since last March. I wonder first if you could tell us what it's been like to be a musician over the past 13 months. Yeah, it's... Well, for a start, I've had to adjust to not travelling, not playing music with other people. I find 
the latter is probably easier in a weird way because when I'm writing music, I'll often be on my own. So I'm, I'm used to sort of compartmentalizing touring and rehearsals and things. But the, the first part, the, the, the lack of movement and, and the sort of villagizing of every, everybody that sort of happened has been the more extraordinary and interesting part. So to have to spend time with my family in the way that I have <laughs> sentenced to family life in the way that we were was was, was quite amazing and a, a rare privilege, I think. I, for years, I've been wondering how I was going to break the cycle of just doing one thing after another. And suddenly I had no choice but just stand still with everybody else and just exist in the way that we've all had to. So it, it's it's been like that. Uh, I think that when lockdown happened the first time, that was probably the most extraordinary moment because none of us knew quite what we were going into. And I was just about to, I mean, days away from beginning what was a massive tour that we'd been teeing up for quite some time. So the White Ladder anniversary tour was about to unfold. And suddenly we were, it was, that was all packed away and then there was an air of uncertainty. So there was an air of novelty as well at the beginning. We didn't know if we were dealing with six months, 12 months, three months. I was of the mind that this was going to take a long time to sort out, not because I'm some sort of expert, but I'd been following the whole thing very, very carefully from the first stories. And once it came out of China, the pandemic began to brew and the, the cruise ships and then Italy. And it was at that point, I just thought the cat's out the bag. Our sort of amateur version of looking out for the virus isn't going to do the trick. This thing is going to intersect with this tour. And I could just feel it. And we were over, well over a month, even from the rehearsals starting at that point. So it was something I felt was going to be quite hard to unravel. And so it's, so it's proving. So I, I think for a while where I was in a sort of suspended state but living family life in a way that I probably haven't done uh, for many, many years. As I said, the tracks were written in advance of COVID, yet it seems incredibly timely. What, how long had this idea been kicking around for you? And, and why were you making it at this point? I think it was a set of ideas. And, you know, occasionally when you're writing songs, uh, one comes along that doesn't seem to fit with the others you're doing but has an authority about it that says, come over here, there's more stuff. This, 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 this vantage point is, is favourable. You, you could travel through this portal and into more music and you kind of hold that thought. Uh, and I've been sort of doing that intermittently since, particularly since I wrote the song Skellig, the title track, which was probably about 2009, 2008, I then layered the vocals in a certain way and I thought, oh yeah, I've got other songs that I've already written that would actually suit this. And I, I delved into my sort of all the odds and sods I always have lying around and I dragged a couple of things out and they came together. And then I started to have a sort of body of songs. And and based on that, I then wrote Dunleary, which is almost like an answering song to Skellig. And suddenly it was this little thing. And um, I, I sensed that, this kind of no-tempo, lyric-driven, contemplative music was perhaps playing to all my strengths, and it allowed me the space to explore ideas perhaps more thoroughly than when there's more of a beat and you're in more of a hurry to sort of arrange the dynamics of the music to make an impact. So I guess that, that's, how it's, that's how it started. 
And, and as the songs began to arrive, I, I saw that it was a body of work. And the next step on to, to making an album was in 2013, when we wanted to do an experimental tour driven entirely by sort of social media without a promoter to see how we could sell tickets through Facebook and everything else. We went round Ireland with a friend of ours who put it together, Donald Scannell. And um, I said, all right, if we're going to do this tour, it's a perfect opportunity, seeing as I'm not on a record cycle, to experiment with these songs I've got lying around. My vision is for, I think my manager thought it was going to be one man and a guitar and a way to make a few quid without many overheads. And I immediately did what artists have been doing for centuries, which is ruined everything by having my, my vision. I said, no, no, I want a choir of voices. I want six or seven people to sing with. So there went the profits. And it was like, we'd be lucky if we broke even. But uh, we went off on this adventure with these new songs. And I think from the moment we began to rehearse, before we even it was all arranged as well the voices was quite randomized there was a few band members and people i knew like caroline dale who plays the cello that i immediately recruited and then for other voices i didn't know where to go so i just kind of put a call out and and people suggested different people i spoke to them on the phone i listened to their music on the internet and then i invited them to become a part of it so there were half well-known people and half strangers but when we all began to sing the songs and i taught everyone the words the, the first moment when it became not me harmonizing with myself, but six people singing together, seven even actually on that tour, the, the music took on another quality and, and the hair sort of stood up on not just the back of my neck, but on I think on everybody's that was there, the, the crew, the band. And we realized that there's something extraordinary about singing together in this way and not just harmonizing in the chorus, but carrying the whole song from start to finish. That's such an intimacy. And and the songs were so they, you don't press the accelerator. It's about it's about drifting into them and letting the words do the work. So it's it's this last lack of force which brings the listener even closer, perhaps, but also the musician too, as as we were discovering. So then the tour that followed is perhaps the most triumphant you know, creative tour that I've ever been on because it was utterly unknown what we were doing. We were playing music no one had heard and yet it was going down a storm. And I was, I had the ultimate instrument. I had this band of people who were singing uh, these six, seven part vocal arrangements. So w w the, when that tour happened, I realized that this was an album and I needed to write a few more songs and it needed to be done in the way the tour had been done. We needed to carry ourselves off somewhere sever contact with the known world of sort of domesticity and business and legal affairs and sort of turn our phones off and be somewhere remote where we could just concentrate on making music in this very intimate way. And so that's the sort of history of how the idea was born. Obviously, the, t the title is a reference to the chain of islands off the Irish coast at Nidderi. And obviously, that's an incredibly isolated place. You'd seized upon the idea prior to this forced isolation that we've all endured during the pandemic. Did that feel very um, sort of, was that a coincidence? Did it feel incredibly fortuitous that that is something you'd done at this point? Or were there reasons that you were thinking about those themes anyway? I think I'm always thinking about the theme of, of getting closer to what existence is, what raw, elemental living really feels like. We're so distracted and so put upon by technology and, you know, and other people and noise. It's hard to know what's real. We live in a world of mirrors. So to take all that away and live on a, a I mean, 
off the coast of Kerry, these islands are like the last stop before America. And if you if you get close to them and see what they're actually like, they are vertiginous towers of black rock. It's like something from Lord of the Rings. Uh, the idea of living at the top, 300 meters up, amongst what would be a, a cacophony of wind noise and seabird colony during the summer, at least, spring and summer. The idea of being there, battered by the weather, and then the, the incredible calms, the storms, the stars, not for a day, not for a week, that would be unforgettable, but to actually base yourself there and to eke out some impossible, frugal existence with no means of connecting with the mainland, uh, they connecting with you, for the sake of God and your connection to him. I mean, that inspired me. I had a dizzying sense of awe. It was when my friend who'd visited and told me the story of the Skelligs, because of his, he was buzzing off this visit, described the hand-cut steps, like jumping off the boat because there's no dock and it's a very haphazard entry to the island. You leap from the boat onto the sort of onto dry land or, or rain, rain and spray-washed land. And then you've got to climb what is an incredibly um, steep gradient on hand-cut steps. And the monks over the years had cut this stairway. And I use that line in the song. And there's something about that. That, that human hands knelt in the, in the rain and the, the, the spray of the waves and they cut out these steps to get up to the top. That, that image, amongst with lots of other thoughts, lit my mind and, uh, and, and, and then the song Skellig was born. So yes, I've been, I've been preoccupied with these ideas of escape and, and just how cluttered our thinking is and it, it's, it's hard to find the space to, to make this connection. And I think, you know, pertinently during lockdown, we were forced to look at existence. It's like the line, what does a fish know about the water in which it swims became one that came straight into my mind. We, 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 we were, as I say, villagized, so sort of disconnected from shopping consumerism in the most obvious ways, communal living. And then we had to sort of live at close quarters with each other and and all we could do was venture out for a walk and it was this you know god lent down and, and made the sun come out for two months while we were doing that and then you had this incredible spring unfurled and i think virtually everybody was touched by by the simple pleasure of watching that happen and also having the time to watch it on a daily basis happen when you see the cow parsley if I go away on tour at the beginning of, of, of April and I come back at the beginning of May, Hampstead Heath is like a different place. It's been transformed completely from what I left. The, 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 the taxi ride to the airport looks nothing like the taxi ride back. But we were all in the same place for, for, for months on end, watching and listening to the changes. And uh, so, so this, this music that's very inward and searching and, and plays with the ideas of... of of, of finding a deeper connection to it, the existence, uh, and maybe turning your back on some of the other things. That it became very pertinent, and that's why I think when I said oh, I could finish this record during lockdown, everybody who got to hear it said it's important that it comes out straight away because this is the right moment for this record. People not only have more time to listen to Chaffinches and Robins, but they've got more time to to dwell on music, perhaps in a way that's that's a bit more involved and as if to bear that out i mean the reviews i got showed an unusual degree of having listened to the music well i was gonna say i mean obviously the reviews have been have been wonderful you know, it's been described as a serene career highlight i think that was in the irish times and, and i suspect part of that is 
that it feels so unbelievably the album for now. So if we're, we're talking about monks from, from the sort of 7th century, what on earth, if you transplanted them into our world now and the cacophony of noise, the rather different cacophony, what do you think they would make of this world? I mean, it would be so overwhelming. Precisely. I think that to extend the metaphor of their fragile lives even further... The reason, I think, that I'm, I'm trying to get to the bottom of what they were doing out there. It wasn't just a medieval competition of who could live in the most dangerous and impossible place. It was, uh, you know, who can make life most difficult for themselves, like some sort of... Um, it, it, was, it, was, it, it was also because they were trying to preserve the learning and the books and Christianity itself, because there was, a, there was a, a backlash and people were burning books and burning Christians. So I, I think that it was a very real threat to the things that mattered and the ideas that mattered, the forward-thinking ideas and the, the caring, sharing ideas that they had with their God. And, and this raw existence was trying to engulf everything again. Well, that's even more uh, in tune with what's been happening over the last crazy 18-month period. We've seen the Trump admin and administration sort of go down in flames and countless other very, very uh, powerful movements really gain a momentum that is unthinkable. This lensing effect that staying still and really thinking about what matters to you has seemed to have had on from Sarah Everard to Black Lives Matter, you name it. You, we've seen these incredible things. I can't really remember anything like it. And also we're all standing still watching it. So I think that there are there are parallels to be drawn without laboring the point too much uh, of, of what they were actually doing up there. Where they were trying to to make a vital connection and preserve something very important. And I think one of the things that's most depressing about the pandemic is the the, the, the fact that we all know that in order to survive economically, coming out the other side of this, we've just got to consume our asses off for the next twenty five years to hell with climate change. Let's just get the holidays back up and running. Let's get the, the shops open, what's left of them. Half of Soho hasn't reopened since the first lockdown, I noticed. So it, it's, it's, it's really depressing to, to be an emergent form coming back into what we were before. And I think everybody knew climate change or any sentient being was aware of it previously. But having had this year or so to dwell on how our privileged lives expecting to be able to go on holiday skiing this way that going off to the weekend to the south of france all this stuff that just felt completely acceptable suddenly i don't know if i want to put that back on again because that that doesn't feel right either so i think making a connection with the world that we live on in a really fundamental way is essential to people changing their thinking i don't think that climate change is, is going to have much of a chance of being prevented or nature being saved, you know, which is something that goes hand in hand, uh, it, uh, unless people can reimagine their life and, and reimagine the world that they live on. And this year has provided a first step in doing so. In this short break, we wanted to play you a clip from Cheat, a new podcast series digging underneath the surface to tell the inside stories behind some of the biggest scandals in contemporary history. Roll the tape. Have you ever wondered about those people in life who don't play by the rules? We have a name for these people. We call them cheats. All of them knowingly conspired to help their children cheat on the SAT or ACT. We marvel at their rise, and then we take a weird pleasure in their fall. I have let my country down, and I have let myself down. But what we hardly ever do is stop to ask, what makes these people cheat? I'm Alzo Slade. I'm a storyteller and used to be a philosophy professor. In this series, we're going to dig underneath the surface to meet the cheats. 
feats like the 28-year-old who brought down the global stock market from his bedroom. And Naz tells the exchange to kiss my ass. Or the teachers who make a shocking choice to help their disadvantaged students. The sickest thing that's ever happened to this town. And somewhere along the way, we're going to ask ourselves, are they actually not so different from you and me? Cheat from something else. Listen now wherever you get your podcast. Obviously, you, as you said, your, your tour was paused. One thing I wanted to ask is in a music industry that, you know, so much comes from touring revenue, does does the industry need to rethink how it's making money in the era of streaming? Because clearly it's incredibly vulnerable. I mean, this was unprecedented, of course, as we kept hearing, but it is very vulnerable if it is so reliant on touring revenue. Which is wrong. I mean, you know, let's face it, it's a stitch up and, uh, you know, the, the, the majors and the, the, the big tech giants can hide behind words, but the facts are glaring and obvious. People who are writing hits are living on the poverty line because there's no money coming back. I mean, you're back, it's bad enough being the artist, let alone the songwriter. Where's the money from a stream for the songwriter? It's not treated as a performance. The record company saw to that. They saw that it was treated as a sale. So there's no acknowledgement, really, of the writing at all. You get a, f- a fragment of a fragment of a fragment of a tiny thing. So it, it, it's like um, a whale can't sustain on a sort of sardine a day. It's going to need a little bit more to go on. Not that I, that's a sort of Alan Partridgeism, <laughs> a meaningless metaphor, which I embarked on. I, I am the whale. <laughs> Aha! He stalks our every move. So it's, it's, yes, I think it's exposed some hard truths about the fact this is unsustainable. And, you know, and I'm in a very lucky position. I've been making music for a long time. So I have residual income coming in. It's enough to keep the wolf from the door. But for most people, that's just not true. And artists starting out now, the idea that they need to fund themselves with their merch and their touring. That's that's a supplementary thing. Making recorded music. Hello, have we gone back to the sort of Victorian era, the sort of entrepreneurial kind of, you know, you're lucky if you get a tenner for turning up. I mean, it's just it should be more organized than this. And, you know, just look at the profit margins on the sort of now slimmed down major labels and and all the, the tech partners who do so well out of the sort of. The, the music mechanism, it's, it's individuals and, and artists who are definitely suffering. And that has been exposed. And there's been the Parliamentary Select Committee and all that's been going on there. And some very pertinent and, and obvious things have been said by various people. I thought it was shameful the way that the industry reacted and the, the nonsense that they spoke. But uh, what's, a, what's the surprise there? They'll, rem- they'll remedy all this stuff. It'll just take them 25 years. In the meantime, they'll have you know, that they'll be all right, they'll have retired sort of thing. There's also a question about whether the government, and I suspect I might know what you think on this, did governments do enough to protect the arts during the pandemic? And is it too easy to neglect the arts? Uh, You know, they they seem like things perhaps to some people that are, I don't know, supplementary in life rather than integral. Even what I've said already, it'd be very easy to to listen to what I've just said in the last five minutes and say, what a moaning rock star, you know. And 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 that's basically the approach. They love being on stage. They love they get to do all this. They get to make music, have fun. You know, they've got the, the girls, they get the they get the action, they get you know, they're they're all having a great time. You know, why are they moaning about not making enough money? You know, boo hoo. You know, I've got to work in a, you know, a, a supermarket. I'm I'm whatever it is, you can make a comparison that makes 
the whole thing seem like an indulgence to be complaining about the way that things are. So I think one thing that the pandemic has exposed is the total lack of understanding. Oliver Downden didn't seem to understand how the music business even worked. I mean, that was completely obvious and still and is still obvious because there's no detail at all about how. I mean, how do you make money? You don't make money from selling 50 percent of the seats. If you did a tour around the UK, you wouldn't make any money at all. You'd probably lose money. It, your, your profit is like is in is getting night over 65, maybe 70 percent. And then you're starting to make some money. That, that That's how it works. It, 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 unless everyone pays twice as much to sit in the 50 percent of the seats, it, it, you've got a model that doesn't work. So it, it's. There's been a, such a lack of detail and such an obvious m- lack of understanding, I think, that, that I can level that at the government. I, I'm not one of those that would just say government this, government that, or that they should sort everything out. Small venues, this, that, the other. They, I mean, where's all this money coming from that they're having to pay all this stuff out to? So uh, there, are, there are people I look at, as I say, the major labels, Apple, all the people who have a, a, a lot to gain, you know, Amazon, all the people who've made an awful lot of money and, and capital as well, and, 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 and sort of the cool of music launched the iPod and then the iPhone. And then we all realize, hang on, what happens after that? And there's, there's nothing to, there's, it's not a sustainable model. It was just, um, it was that once the, the sales disappeared, you realize that, oh, I, I, this is how it's going to be now. So it, it's, it's, it's maybe to, to, pro- to to support some of culture, some of the people that make so much money, be it television companies or record companies or whatever, out of showing culture and using culture, be that music, theatre or film or whatever, they, they maybe could, you know, get their heads together and get some money together and help the government. Maybe it could be a partnership a public-private partnership. I mean, that's what I would suggest, particularly for things... I, I, I don't know about the broader thing. Once you start to broaden this out with theatre and film and everything else, but with the music industry and small venues and rehearsal rooms and small studios and places that are really... I mean, if they're going to reopen, you know, half of them, you'd be surprised. They, they're not places that make a lot of money. They just... They love having a little venue. Bands love playing there. It's that little venue in town that you... When you're, when you're in your bedroom practising, when you're 17, you're dreaming of your first gig there. And it's the gateway to all the other stuff. That's the stuff that's going to disappear. And, we'll, you know, Simon Cowell and co. would all, always be able to cook up the next pop star. That's not a difficult science to master. It's like you just get some very attractive young people and you stick them on a stage with some brilliant songwriters writing some amazingly catchy songs and you throw a load of money at it and lo and behold, you've got a success on your hands. It's the other stuff. You know, it's the next talk talk or the next radio head or the next. Where's that stuff going to grow? You know, we don't have the, 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 um, the you know, the, the the opportunity for those things to so that's what concerns me i think going forward the last it's not as if the last 20 years haven't been tumultuous for the you know the music industry they've been a complete and utter turning upside down when you take sales out of any industry it's going to struggle and that's why there's so much onus on 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 the live ticket suddenly you know but it, it's 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 been a it's been a mad period of of change so uh, i think this has just brought what's been left of all that what's left of the music system and how it actually functions for, for day-to-day musicians who are passionately going about trying to make a living and get their music out there, what it really means to them. This has really shown that without the live money, they're really in trouble and it doesn't work at all. 
is a more positive i mean i, I don't know if there's anything totally positive here but but do you think the pandemic might also have made people realize quite how valuable the arts are i mean it's been a good time for publishing for example because people have have actually had time to read yeah yeah uh, well i'd i'd like to think so i think it's deepened people's appreciation of 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 the stuff that they took for granted and 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 that's culture and nature and every everything else so i th- i think it it's it's all come into a different kind of focus we've been given a rare privilege so uh, and i don't mean to uh, make light of all the people who've died and suffered and are still suffering because of the disease but those of us who've had to pause our lives we've been given a rare privilege i feel in this year to evaluate our lives in a way that is very very difficult when you're in constant forward motion so i i, I think you know well i mean you, you try and imagine going to that gig that me- means so much to you and and listening to whoever it is you want to listen to gillian welsh bonivere radiohead you know um it, whatever floats your boat and they sing that song that you've been waiting to hear and you'd have tears flowing down your face to be able to do that now and that's how much it means it's like music is is made of emotion and all this stuff a bit like we're starting to understand how forests and, and, and ecosystems work. You have to look at them from the ground up. The sort of fungal interconnectivity is the only thing that makes sense of the whole thing. You can see how interconnected everything is, and, and culture is a vital part of that. You know, we are, we are what allows so many other things to happen. I mean, I, it, it's something I would die for, you know, music. It's made such a difference to me in my life. I, 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 it's slight what I do compared to someone who's working in A&E, you know, or, or a policeman who has to try and deal with a braying crowd that are throwing things at them. And yet I feel it can make a difference to people's lives in, 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 a, in a profound way, but a quieter way over time. Because if I hadn't the things that I've discovered in music and art, that, that I, I, my, what would my life be without those experiences? So... Yeah, so we've had a chance to to work out what matters, I suppose. I think, as I said earlier, the difficulty is coming out of this. The sort of accelerator pedal is, is going to get pressed very hard and we're going to be encouraged to, to live and consume in a way that's perhaps, you know, the maximum. And that just feels a little bit alien, a little bit wrong. It's very difficult coming out of this. I, I, and I mean that from a psychological point of view as an individual the multiple anxieties and behavioral things we've been sort of institutionalized in a weird way. It's actually quite a challenge to go back to normal. And just in the last couple of weeks, we've had a party that we were all looking forward to just been canceled. Cause basically someone just freaked out, you know, cause it's like, Oh my God, I can't do this. It's like, <laughs> I've invited too many people. It's off. You know, and they, they've kind of gone off the, they've, They've come off the, the chat group just, and then dinner party, same thing. It's like, oh, I, I don't know. People are having a weird sort of, and we, we're trying to find our way back. So th- there's so much going on. Um, in the middle of all that, I think we do realise that, I mean, the idea of playing a gig now, if I could play the songs on Skellig, I mean, to do that, which is such emotional music and so slow and, and so vulnerable, if I could, if I could be living that vulnerability and sharing my words with this communal band of singers with an audience now it's mind-blowing to think of doing that because you could feel all the emotion it's that wonderful moment watching the fa cup final the fa cup 
finals, something that suffered enormously in the last 20 years in, in terms of importance. It used to be the only televised game and suddenly there's games on every day of the week. But it suddenly they got an audience back in, the crowds were back in, and not only that, the underdog won with a wonderful goal. And then there were these kind of Roy of the Rovers saves and this big VAR controversy right at the end. And the whole place was just absolutely brimming with emotion and the commentators, the pundits, everybody, the ref, everyone was caught up in it because that's the wonder of being alive. It's an unknowable thing. It's just, it's more than you can hold. And it was a fantastic thing to watch because no one could, it couldn't be encapsulated. It, it, It was just too irresistible and too spontaneous. And I think that, you know, once I had to sing a performance for my father when he was very, very ill. And in fact, he died just a couple of days later. But we had a sort of party weekend for him. And when it came to singing the songs, this was during the heyday of White Ladder. I couldn't get the words out of my mouth because I the emotion that the song was made from, something I was normally not able to really see. I become immunized to use, uh, you know, the right expression, really. I couldn't get the emotions of the song out of my body. I was, I was, <laughs> I was completely overwhelmed. And, and I realized that that's what the songs were made from. So when I see other people being affected, but I'm no longer, even though I'm the person who's singing the song, I'm just busy getting the right notes in the right order and, and making sure I do a performance that hits all the marks and the quality control, like, you know, um, but but then you feel the emotion that it's made of yourself. You're the person who wrote it. You put the emotion there. But it, it's it's not always visible because we were just... And that's true of all our lives. The, the wonders of seeing friends or, you know, giving a hug or whatever, it is it, it suddenly all those gestures that seemed kind of like strange social traditions that, you know, didn't really mean a lot. And then you start to sense your animal wariness overcoming your other instinct to be close to people and then the 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 two voices of hang on covid and you know i should keep my distance and then but then when you're allowed to do it again you know it's actually vital it's important but you couldn't really see it for what it was so i guess yeah the 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 last year has brought a lot of clarity to bear that that's for sure well thank you so so much and i hope you will be back performing soon um I'd like to thank David for a fascinating conversation. I'm Rosamond Irwin, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.